Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. Welcome as well to those joining us online and down in our Fellowship 3 service. Is everybody awake? Yeah, good. Uh, if you're not awake yet, uh, you will be. Uh, I'd like to start off uh, with a question just for you to think about. Can you remember the last time you stayed up late at night, way later than you anticipated? My bride and I have a, a four-month-old named Samuel, so we can recall the last several. Uh, maybe you or somebody in your home was sick. Uh, maybe you were up late at night talking with somebody and the hours uh, just got away from you. I think we've all had that happen at some point. Maybe a, a job or a stress of some sort was, was holding your head in such a way that it couldn't quite hit the pillow uh, quite right. Uh, whatever the reason, sometimes... God's going to stir in our lives when the rest of the world isn't. And there's no window of time that he isn't in control. And these late night moments can actually turn into quite a beautiful thing because after all, we have a 24-7 God. I actually think that's one of the reasons the, the local church is so important. Uh, we get to embrace tradition and gathering. Any, any chance we can all get together like this, it's a beautiful thing. But another value of the local church is that it doesn't skip out on the relationship either. The value of acknowledging who God is in other parts of our day. What else is he up to? And the ability to meet each other where we're at, encourage one another. That's a crucial thing as well. The book of Acts upholds the value of both of those things. It establishes the corporate gathering and also points believers toward one another in a way that honors and glorifies God. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Uh, if you're new here, uh, we like to uh, speak and teach through books of the Bible. Uh, we think uh, God is way more worthy uh, of our ears than any of us. And so we have been embracing this, this triumph of the gospel series through the book of Acts chapter 20. And that means we're getting there, by the way, ladies and gents. We're almost three quarters of the way through this thing. Uh, what we're going to see here is the author, Luke, describes uh, a late night, an eventful one uh, that clearly we were supposed to know about. So as you're turning there, Acts 20, over the last couple weeks, uh, our pastor of discipleship, Tim Sanford, he's been walking us through Acts 19, and we got to see the, the sovereignty of God despite struggles. Acts 19 included riots and uproars regarding Paul's teaching, and that's Paul's teaching in contrast to what was happening in Ephesus, this godless worship. So Ephesians came face to face with gods of their own making compared to the one true king. So what Luke does now is he pivots then and he gives us an update on church life in reference to Paul's continued journey. And you better believe God's sovereignty will continue to ring true. So we're going to look at the first 12 verses of Acts 20. It's going to give us some insight into what could be called the collective and the communion. Follow along with me as his journey continues to unfold. It says, after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece, and there he spent three months and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, 
and by Aristarchus and Segundus of the Thessalonians, by Gaius of Derby, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead, and he writes, were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of the unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven. We'll stop right there for a little bit. So, after the uproars had ceased, as all uproars do, do sooner or later, Paul calls them all back and he, he strongly encourages them before leaving. Twice, in fact, Luke describes it as this, this exhortation. So, that's another reminder that we're not just studying a, a missionary journey that's for, for new converts and for believers. His content involved a passionate push for church leadership. Where do we go from here? And with that, God isn't just orchestrating Paul's heart in this. God plays a sovereign hand in the geography and the ability to keep moving. So look at verse 3 for a second. It says, There he spent three months, this is Greece, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return instead through Macedonia. You see, right there, Luke is, is simply detailing some accounts we need to know as he builds up to a much more exciting event that we're going to get to shortly. But it's fascinating to realize that the Jews at this point are having to rely on where they think Paul is going to be in order to catch him. That is another sign that the Lord is winning in all of this. The indication is these Jews gather together, okay, we know Paul is in Greece, the slippery little rat. How are we going to catch this guy? That's their, that's their attitude at this point. Paul has more plots formed against him than Tom Cruise in the Mission Impossible franchise. Okay? Paul is going through it. And clearly, no weapon formed against him is prospering at this point. This time, God enables Paul to travel through Macedonia instead. Praise God for that. If Paul set sail for Syria, Acts might only be 19 chapters. Whatever their plot was, it included that boat, and that's why Luke wants us to know. So we see the first of many encouragements from this passage. With God, there is always an open door. There is always an open door. See, not once is Paul left with the burden of figuring things out on his own. He has never backed into a spiritual corner without the opportunity and ability for the Lord to provide. The same is true for us. He has the, the Spirit of God informing his decisions. And as it turns out, he's not traveling alone either. Look at verses 4 through 6, because our collective starts to take shape here. He was accompanied in all this by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Segundus, these two Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby, and then three uh, gentlemen from Asia, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus. These men, named intentionally, included for a reason, positively implicated in whatever God was going to do next. You see, we are seeing also that not only is there always an open door with God, but God never organizes people by accident. He is working in ways we cannot fully understand at times. He never organizes people by accident. Listen, there are, there are like seven Mission Impossible movies last I counted, okay? It's hard to keep track at this point. And despite the movie trailers for these things showing this, this main character, Ethan Hunt, doing crazy things alone, 
uh, doing flips over castles alone, jumping out of planes wearing nothing but shoulder floaties alone. Despite the way the trailer portrays it, he actually has a team of people behind him making it possible in the first place. In this franchise, those people are called the IMF, the Impossible Mission Force. That's how you know this movie franchise started in the 90s. It's as cheesy as it sounds. But he has this team of people behind him. And first of all, you watch these movies in the credits roll and you're thinking, wait, so it was possible. Yeah, the whole franchise is a lie. The point is, we have a similar reality of a team of people behind Paul. Paul is not the only one God is using. Oftentimes, Paul gets all the credit, but he's not the only one God is working through. Furthermore, is this mission impossible, what they're experiencing in Acts 20? First of all, through Christ, all things are possible, so jot that down. Here we have uh, a possible mission force, a PMF of sorts. So these gentlemen, along with them, their mission, and they chose to accept it, included the following people. I think I have this for you. These are our church representatives of what the Lord has already been doing. This is very systematic by Paul and these guys. So we have Sopater of Berea, and he lists uh, a first and second Thessalonian for us to consider, Aristarchus and Secundus. The name Aristarchus literally means from the ruling class, and Secundus literally means second, the cultural context indicating he was a slave. See, slaves weren't actually named other than the order in which they were born. So these are the kind of people that God has brought together and that Paul is traveling with. You have Gaius of Derby, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. This is important to understand because the book of Acts is operating on a grander and grander scale. Paul is building relationships with all walks of life, and those relationships are bearing fruit. God uses the multitude. So we see that the mission includes all kinds of people. What God is up to, it includes all kinds of people. It's never been about like-minded individuals, but rather it's been about the people that Jesus has died for. These men listed were Gentiles, Gentiles of, of various backgrounds, and that's why Luke explains their brief departure. So look at verses 5 through 6. He wants us to know that these men had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of the unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven. So who forms a, a band of brothers just to send them away? The context clue that can help us answer that is the phrase, days of the unleavened bread. That means the Jewish feasts are happening. Passover is upon them. So Paul is taking the opportunity to send the Gentiles, those unaccustomed and uninterested in the Jewish tradition, he's sending them ahead so they can wait for him and Luke, which is another context clue. Luke begins writing in first person. They were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of the unleavened bread and we came to them. This tells us that Luke has most likely been in Philippi this whole time. So all throughout Acts, when Paul visits Philippi, Luke tends to write in first person. We get a little bit of understanding of where he's been. So we have Paul in the context of Jewish customs. And in that context, he has always fueled the triumph of the gospel of Jesus. Similarly, and perhaps wisely, the inclusion in this journey of Gentile brothers allowed for their backgrounds and their influences to build bridges with people as well. So that's the team, the collective. 
So let's get to the good stuff then. Uh, If any of you all are getting restless, you must have read ahead, you rebels. If Luke doesn't have your attention yet, uh, I'm not too worried about that. He will very shortly. That's our collective, but here's the story of their communion, starting in verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep, fell down from the third floor, and was picked up dead. Let's stop there for a second. We'll see you next week. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, The passage doesn't stop there, thankfully, but I think we should stop here for a second just so we can understand literally the gravity of the situation, okay? Uh, You've perhaps heard the phrase, when God closes a door, he opens a window. Maybe don't tell Eutychus that, okay? Uh, I am blessed that everybody listening to me right now is on the ground floor. That's not to say some of you aren't falling asleep, but I know the power of a wife's elbow to keep you on the straight and narrow. Uh, This story is crazy, so fun to teach through. And before we see how it ends, Luke is detailing a night that went way later than anybody anticipated. Can you remember a night where you stayed up way longer than you thought you would? If Luke was here, he'd be like, I'll go last. But yeah, I got one. This communion of believers, regardless of the time, is actually significant for a couple of reasons. Firstly, we see a biblical example for gathering on the first day of the week. It's clear as day in verse 7, and that's further supported by Paul's letters, like 1 Corinthians 16, that exhorts believers to come together and they start their week with remembering the resurrection and who Jesus is. So it's not about having to honor a specific Sabbath procedure or time anymore. It's about freedom in Christ and the encouragement to gather and take it seriously. Second, Luke is clear. The believers were gathered to break bread together. It was the reason for their gathering. They were not gathering to discover what Paul was going to say. They were not gathering to figure out how long he's going to blabber on. That was not the reason. The reason was the breaking of bread. It was to commune together. That means communion isn't just something to do when you happen to be together. It's a reason to come together. Don't just take my word for it or Luke's word. Let's hear from the man himself. Jesus said this, recorded in Matthew 26, starting in verse 26. He says, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Communion was instituted by Jesus himself. So this this procedure then, this, this breaking of bread that the church values, it goes well beyond eating and became a value of the early church in Acts, modeled and practiced by Paul and others. We know this, that's supported further by the foundation of the book of Acts. Here's Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching 
and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Several months ago, we unpacked that verse in its entirety, those four things, those tenets, those values of church. Here's another reason this particular communion of believers in Acts 20 is biblically significant, and your sermon notes reflect this. It, leads, uh, it is the culmination of Paul's teaching. So as it leads to the rest of the passage, it is the culmination of Paul's teaching. You see, Paul's burning the midnight oil here, okay? He is going on and on and on. So the question is, why? Why would he do that? Was he not able to, to read the room? The text is clear that he's leaving the next day. He's already been exhorting everybody left and right every chance he gets. So here we are, a room of experienced and growing Jews and Gentiles, and he takes the opportunity to say everything he possibly can. His mentality is, hey, if I'm leaving tomorrow, it's going to be tonight for a while because there are a lot of things I want to share with you. He wanted them, tried and true, through and through, wise in the Jesus of the Scriptures. So in order to do that, he talked forever. Clearly, there seems to be a bit of a consequence to that, so let's talk about it. This brings us to the crisis of Eutychus. The culmination of Paul's teaching is important in this passage, so is the crisis of Eutychus. Listen, I work in youth ministry, okay? I know what it looks like when somebody's bored to death. So does Paul, okay? Look at verse 8. Because Luke explains the domino effect that puts Eutychus out the window. Okay? Verse 8, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. I love that he wants us to know this. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking gradually, the original language tells us, into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. Okay, first off, let's take a pause. We can appreciate right now that we are in an air-conditioned room with comfy chairs and adequate lighting. Okay, uh, this is a perfect storm leading to, unfortunately, a literal tragedy. This passage is proof that nobody can have an upper room discourse quite like Jesus could because Paul tries it in a room full of oil lamps, which Luke wants us to know about, that indicates that the room is full of these fumes and it's, it's dimly lit. It's a battle of the senses here. It's late at night, window seating, and a kid died because of it. And actually, the original Greek is less forgiving. It says young man, but it's more of a preteen, somewhere between 8 and 13 years old most likely. So it's a little funny for us to read, mainly because we know how it ends, but to experience this firsthand would be brutal. Brutal to notice. Luke's language here, furthermore, implicates Paul big time. He wants us to know Paul kept on talking. I love it. Luke actually takes a break from the first person stuff. There's a lot of we and us, and, and then once the Eutychus happens, it's a lot of Paul, 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 right? He kept on talking. Sleep overcame the boy, and just so we're clear on the severity of the situation, he totally died, by the way. Okay, Luke is a physician. He does not write down the word dead lightly. Uh, this wasn't a, a, a faint out the window and a fortunate bounce. Okay, no, it, it killed him. This young boy carelessly rested inside a window as Paul tirelessly kept on talking. 
Most people uh, will teach through this passage, and they'll, they'll blame Paul for this incident. Some people will actually teach through this passage and blame Eutychus. Shouldn't have been sitting in the window. The point of the passage is not about blame. It's understanding sometimes a communion service will not go according to plan, but God is sovereign. God uses it anyways. Years and years ago, my family and I, uh, we were just straight up late to church. I'm talking late. This was not a countdown's hitting zero, you walk in the lobby, hey, Jennifer Wiseman, then you go sit down and you're there. No, people have been worshiping by the time we walked in this building, okay? My family and I, we normally sit front right, not today, I tell you what. We sit in the way back, and it's communion Sunday, okay? Me and all my siblings were irate. Why are we even here? We are so late, we shouldn't have even come. My parents are like, no, it's important, we're coming. Communion Sunday, okay? Now, pre-COVID, we used to pass around what's called a communion plate. You might see one in the Museum of the Bible one day. Communion plate, we'd all pass it, we'd put our grubby little fingers in, we'd grab the bread, right? So, I grab my bread, my dad right next to me grabs his, okay? And some point during the remembrance in me, my dad lost his bread. He starts doing, uh, you've all done it before, it's called the silent church shuffle, where you're trying to find something, praying your chair doesn't squeak. So I'm, I'm watching my dad do this. I can tell it, this bread must have bounced into the nether because we could not find it, okay? So my critical thinking as a 13-year-old, I raise up my tiny little piece of bread, break it, and set an even smaller piece on my dad's knee so he can partake when the elder asks us to. Okay? Now, if you don't know me or my dad, Barry, at all, after the quiet giggling over the fact that my dad lost the body of Christ was over, we got to partake together. And the Lord did something interesting in my heart in that moment because I remember thinking, this is actually interesting. I just gave my dad something he needed in the moment. But it symbolizes something that Jesus gave to everybody once and for all. And it was at that moment, late to church, in the back of the room, that for me, communion went from something my church did to something I want to do. Because it actually really started to bring my thoughts back around to Christ and what He did for me. It matters. The point is, sometimes what we hope to accomplish doesn't go according to plan. So the question is, what became of this much more serious communion mishap with Eutychus? Verses 10 through 12 prove a couple things. The sovereignty of God, the importance of faith, and the essentials of exhortation. Look starting in verse 10. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. And here's the moral of the story. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. So we see amidst the highs and lows, lastly, the comfort of God's hand. The comfort of of God's hand. People read this passage and they think the crazy part is uh, a boring teacher sending a student out the window. I personally think it's pretty crazy that after all was said and done and Eutychus came back to life, Paul says, all right, back up we go. Are you kidding me? Of all times to say, I'm not going back up there. 
No way am I doing that, Paul. I mean, hey, in Paul's mind, they hadn't even gotten to communion yet. They still had to break bread together, and he had more to say. You see, God uses Paul powerfully in the, the miracle of Eutychus' return, but he also uses Paul in the ensuing conversation, which probably everybody was wide awake in, if we're being honest. Okay? I don't think anybody's going back up there and falling asleep, considering what happened to the last person to do it. Okay? All eyes up front. But he kept on talking. There was more he wanted to cover. You see, this is a passage of God's sovereignty over the unexpected, his power over powerless situations. And it's a passage that says, yes, this is how important communion is and encouragement is to the body of Christ. We see the clear value of breaking bread together as believers. We see the importance of Paul's teaching. Ultimately, we have another passage from Acts that shows us the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be diverse, broken, and totally reliant on a sovereign God. So the question is, what about us? Well, for the next 90 minutes, I'd like to speak about several different... Somebody got, uh, some of you got that, others were about to take a strategic bathroom break, right? I promise we're almost over. I don't want to downplay this passage, though, because from collective to communion, this is another miracle as well. The boy came back to life. Somehow, the Holy Spirit let Paul know hey, this boy's life is in my hands, and it's about to come back to yours. And it says they were greatly comforted because of it, after the teaching and communion and the boy being alive. The moral of the story at the end of the day was comfort and encouragement. Again here, it seems Luke would rather detail the environment, the people, and the teaching more so than the details of the life or death situation. Why? Again, I study Acts and I'm going, Luke, give me some more of that story. Why are you summarizing that so quickly? Why Luke's brevity? We've talked in here before about him being a, a physician, a doctor. He's a fairly matter-of-fact writer. But furthermore, it's becoming clear amidst all these stories, the message matters more than the miracle. The message matters more than the miracle. You see, miracles performed by men like Paul, by his hands in this passage, those miracles would soon stop. But the word of God is everlasting. Miracles themselves were never meant to sustain faith. Instead, it's God's promises from which we can live faithfully. The message matters more in Luke's eyes and hopefully ours than the miracle. As we learn about the intensity and ferocity of these missionary journeys, be it Paul's ferocity for the gospel or his adversary's ferocity against him, it becomes clearer and clearer. The church is meant to be diverse, broken, and totally reliant on a sovereign God. See, we don't often think that way, that, that wait a second, we ought to be worshiping alongside people different than us, different personalities, different temperaments, different ideologies. Of course, we will see brokenness in the life of a local church. The point is, Jesus is the common denominator. We 
should not be comfortable walking into church because we have our act together. We should be eager to walk into church because we don't. We need Jesus. Some continue to wonder about the the missing pieces of Acts 20. What was Paul teaching and speaking about? I mean, specifically, what was he doing into the late hours of the night? What, What sort of content did that involve? Well, what do we know about Luke's book so far, and what do we know about the many letters that Paul writes to these people? You better believe he was talking to them about how Jesus fulfills Jewish prophecy. You better believe he was teaching them about the unity they ought to embrace between the Jews and the Gentiles, people for which Jesus also died. You better believe he was teaching them about communion and the importance of what Christ has done. You see, Paul devoted his entire Christian life to addressing the question, Jesus died for us, now what? Be glad he did that, and be way glad Jesus did die for us, because we have a living hope. That's why we're here. We can believe in him, that Jesus did die on the cross. He lived a life we couldn't. He died the death we should have, so we would be no longer of this world. That is the heart of the gospel. That is the heart of communion. We're going to experience that together shortly. So what's going on in your heart right now? We can live in response to this God and in response to this truth. Here's three ways to do so as we wrap up. Uh, First, do not consider any gathering of believers a coincidence or time wasted. We do not have an accidental God. It, It is a beautiful thing how He orchestrates. God uses His Spirit to stir His people for His glory. Folks, if you are not spending time with with believers you are not blood-related to, I recommend you get going because there are a lot of opportunities to do so. And sometimes the encouragement you need is in the testimony of somebody else around you. Do not consider any gathering of believers a coincidence or time wasted, which brings me to the second one. We should be building relationships as we go and as we grow. It's a journey that we face not unlike Paul's. You see, no doubt what got people traveling with Paul was his relationship with him. What got them willing to go back up to listen to him after he sent a student out the window for talking so long, it was the relationship with him. It mattered. Sincerity of relationship. That means Paul knew the information. He could speak it well. We know. We know he was a gifted teacher and speaker, but he clearly had a passion and priority for the people He embraced life-on-life ministry. So what he knew about Jesus informed the way he loved and lived with others. A few years ago, I received an email uh, from a guy. His name's Sam Noble. Uh, He emails me out of the blue, and he says, Hey, Uh, he introduces himself. He says, I'm on Young Life staff, new to the area, and I'd love to meet up. So as we often do in, in vocational ministry, we get emails like this, and we're networking with other believers. But I'll be honest, uh, on my way to go meet this guy, I made some assumptions. Um, Not necessarily about him, but about the meeting. I'm thinking, okay, here we go. He's going to ask me for money. Uh, Maybe he'll ask me uh, to partner with him so we can walk into the sunset with all the children of Winchester. 
Maybe he's going maybe to ask me about all the other churches or all the other pastors in the area. Maybe he, maybe he already reviewed my church's doctrinal statement, and he wants to compare and contrast what we believe. I went into this, this meeting thinking there would be a comparison of sorts. Lo and behold, we meet up, and none of that happened. He said, hey, I, I was just hoping to meet you, and we don't know anybody here, my wife and I, and I just love to hang out. And I'm going, oh, okay. So we went disc golfing. Turns out Sam is delightful. He's awesome. You see, God made a correction in my life. I went into that meeting thinking ministry was programs and not people. I didn't even consider the idea of a relationship. I was thinking logistics. I was thinking, what is next and what might this guy want from me? Instead of letting the Lord do what he's going to do. Sometimes we can front load relationships or look at them from a distance when really we don't know what God's up to until he's up to it. Sam has become a very dear friend of mine because the Lord is sovereign and not me. Praise God for that. Let's build relationships as we go. It's all a journey. Lastly, here's what I want to leave you with. We can live a life in remembrance of him. I'd like to share one more verse with you uh, before we break bread together. I'd ask politely that you buckle up. This is Psalm 23, verse 4. It says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 23 is a, a passage about the Lord as shepherd. But it says that what God's people walk through is the valley of the shadow of death. Folks, if this passage said the valley of death, good luck to us all. No. I need you to know right now that the closest a believer in Jesus Christ will ever get to death is its shadow. It cannot touch us. And we can live in light of that fact, in remembrance of Him. In fact, the only shadow believers in Jesus Christ need to truly focus on anymore is the shadow of the cross. Because it's the shadow of death, all right, not ours. That's how good our God is. And if Jesus took on death, <laughs> you better believe his church can take on whatever's next. I know of at least a handful of high school students listening to me right now. Hey, school is starting very soon, and I know some days those hallways feel like the red carpet, and other days they feel like the trenches. Do not forget who you are and what has been done on your behalf. You have a God who loves you and a God who is in control. The same goes for all of us. The God of Acts 20, <laughs> he's not finished yet. Let me pray for us. Father God, how crazy is it that, that because of you, we stand forgiven? I mean, that is something that we could spend our whole lives meditating on, and I thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you are not a mystery that we cannot solve, but you revealed yourself through your Son, and you have given us your truth. And God, I pray this morning and moving forward, your voice would ring louder than anybody else's, because there are a lot of messages out there, but there's nothing quite like yours. God, I pray we would take that seriously. 
And as we enter into a time of worship and communion, I pray that the vivid image of you sending your son to die for us on the cross would ring true so we can live a life in remembrance of him. It's in Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen.